Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. You know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, I mean, all, all the above, uh, and also about crypto, you know, because the guest today, he was an early employee at Coinbase too. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Antonio Giuliano. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So originally from Pittsburgh, so give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? It was good. I feel like not that many people have been to Pittsburgh, and there's not a huge reason to visit, but it's a nice place to grow up. So kind of grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I was fortunate to have great family. I'm the oldest of four siblings, um, and then just went to private school for kind of K through 12 um, before I kind of went off to college in New Jersey. Now, what what got you into computers? I would, had always kind of been into it, you know, just generally nerdy guy, right? Um, like to play around with video games, with computers. I used to like torrent video games, right, before my parents would buy them for me. Um, I was fortunate to have access to some computer science classes in high school. So I started that in ninth grade and then just kind of continued that into Princeton where I majored at computer science. So you majored in computer science in Princeton. And then eventually you find yourself in San Francisco. So why did you make that move? So I had always been really interested in starting a company. Um, my dad had worked in entrepreneurship, sort of in the dot-com type era. So I always had just seen that as really the height of achievements and something I really wanted to do for myself. And when I was graduating school, Princeton doesn't really have a big entrepreneurship culture. At least it didn't when I was there. Um, so most people at Princeton just kind of go to work at, you know, your Goldman Sachs and your Googles and just call it a day. But I wanted to start a company. So I kind of felt like the best thing that I could do to set myself up for that would be to find a really high quality startup and work there for a year or two and kind of learn how to do it. Um, and I kind of got to Coinbase pretty differently than everybody else at the time where Everybody who worked at Coinbase at that time was super into Bitcoin, and that naturally led them to Coinbase as, especially at the time, basically the only or one of the main legit companies in the space. I didn't know anything about crypto, um, but Fred Wilson, actually, the famous VC, came and gave a talk at one of our entrepreneurship classes at Princeton where he was mentioning Coinbase. Um, so I decided to apply as you know, one of the 20 companies or so I applied to senior year. And they had this really interesting interview process where they did what they called a work trial. Um, so I did their whole interview process and then they called me up and they were like, hey, can you fly out to San Francisco next week for a week and work with us as kind of a work trial? And I was like, uh, I have school <laughs> and classes, but I thought about it a little bit and I did it to skip classes and school for an entire week. Flew out to San Francisco, um, and while I was there, I just got the chance to obviously meet everybody there. And there are super amazing people at Coinbase, especially at the time, many of whom have gone on to do other really awesome things in crypto, like the founder of Polychain, Paradigm, um, a couple other great crypto companies were at Coinbase at the time. 
And I could tell that they were all awesome. And I really wanted to work with them. I still didn't get crypto, um, but there are all these great people and they're all super passionate and excited about this crypto thing. So I kind of took a leap of faith and decided to join, but turned out to be an awesome decision. I mean, 100 employees there. I mean, the company now has over 4,000 employees and it's a public <laughs> company. So I guess as part of... Um, of a company like this that is a rocket ship and and where you get to really experience the the you know obviously not the early days because the company already has you know quite some employees and a proven business model but what were some of the ingredients that that you saw you know that 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 were all coming together because building a company like this is like you only you only get to experience 15 companies like this that are that are being built on a yearly basis you know it's like they they don't come you know in you know that 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 much so what were some of the kind of like the ingredients that you saw that that made this magical? Well, I think the first thing and probably most important thing were the founders were really awesome, right? Usually it starts with the founders. So at the time, Fred Ursum was still there. So it was Brian and Fred as the two founders. And there were just kind of a lot of little things, I think, that went into the culture. Like everybody was in San Francisco. There were a ton of events that really built a lot of camaraderie on the team. We took off-sites where we, for example, just went up to Lake Tahoe, didn't work for a week, kind of got to know each other. Um, and those are obviously fun, but I think they actually really help a lot with work as well, because it just builds a ton of trust on the team. And the point here is like we had lunch and dinner together every day, and I just got to know the people there really well. So even though I was just kind of a new grad software engineer, I actually got to know Brian and Fred really well. Um, fast forward a little bit to DYDX and when I was starting out and they were the first people that I went to to kind of raise funds and they knew me and they thought I was great from my time at Coinbase um, and then they kind of immediately invested. So I think that kind of culture and just the commitment to getting to know each other really well, even outside of work, is a major component. Um, there were a lot of other things as well. I think at that time, it was still a crypto bear market for the most part. And it had been a bear market for like three or four years at that point. So I sort of joined right in the depths of the initial bear market in crypto. So it wasn't growing super fast, to be honest. I think I joined as employee 100. And then when I left about a year and a half later, there was about 150 people there. So it was growing, but not like ridiculously fast. Um, but that was good, actually. There was all, it was also honestly pretty disorganized at that time, <laughs> but I actually liked that. Um, like there was no VP of engineering or kind of engineering leader. There were just engineering managers rolling up directly to Brian. Um, but at least at that time, Brian didn't really have a lot of time to like manage engineering. So even just as a new grad engineer, you just really get thrown in the water <laughs> with like no support. Um, and some people won't like that, but I actually really like that. Kind of my heuristic for how good I feel like a manager is for me, and I know this is not the case for everybody, it's just like how much they leave me alone. <laughs> so that just really gave me a lot of space to kind of own a lot of projects. Like I was basically responsible at Coinbase for launching in new countries. Um, so I would have to do a lot of banking integrations. I'd have to, even just as a new grad engineer, talk to the legal team and the BD team and sort of serve as the de facto product manager as well. Um, and I think that gave me just a lot of opportunity and visibility on the team. And I don't know if that's necessarily the ideal way to run a company because not everyone will succeed under that kind of environment. But for me, it was really helpful just to have so much space. Because I think one other point I'll make is that I don't think a lot of people realize how much other stuff besides engineering Coinbase does, especially at the time. Like it was a 100-person company, but there were actually only 20 engineers at the time. 
just has huge like legal teams, huge compliance teams. So it actually felt like a pretty small company from an engineering perspective as like the 20th engineer. And it was just really useful. I think my thesis that joining a really high quality company out of college rather than just starting something immediately would be valuable definitely was true. Um, and I still would advocate for anybody that's interested in starting a company someday to try to work at a really high quality startup first, um, because even to this day at DYDX, I just take a ton of best practices that they had. Like we do the same thing with offsites and we try to have a lot of in-person events. We have an AMA with me at the, as the founder every week. Um, and it's just really helpful to kind of have that stuff that you know works that you can just default to rather than trying to figure everything out yourself. So in your case, I mean, you did Coinbase, then you went to Uber for a brief period of time. I mean, what were you hoping to get? Because, I mean, you knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. So what were you hoping to get out of your experience of working for other companies first? Yeah, I mean, learning was the biggest thing. So I worked at Coinbase for about a year and a half. Um, it was really awesome. One of the things that frustrated me about a little bit about Coinbase, and it wasn't really their fault, was just that a lot of projects I worked on kind of got canceled. Um, so for example, I worked on a PayPal integration for Coinbase, which at the time, like no traditional financial company wanted to touch crypto, but they, the BD team had finally gotten this relationship and I built the whole thing and we we're about to launch it. And then PayPal was like, uh, actually, no, we don't want you to launch because we're scared about crypto or whatever. So that was a little bit frustrating. Um, but I super love my time there. I'm still really close with a lot of people. A lot of the people I was close with are actually investors in DYDX and some advisors to today. Um, but yeah, so I kind of was getting some of the end of my time at Coinbase, thinking about what I wanted to do next, thinking about, do I want to just jump in, start a company right now? Do I want to work somewhere else? Um, and kind of the goal I had in my head was that I wanted to spend one year start trying to start a company. Um, and I figured I wouldn't be successful, but I wanted to have at least enough money to kind of live comfortably for a year um, and then just devote all of my effort in that year to starting a company. Um, and Coinbase, like they, this in retrospect was a pretty bad financial decision, right? But they paid, as most startups do, a lower amount of cash, but like a good amount of equity, but at the time it wasn't really liquid or anything. So Honestly, one of the things I was kind of looking for and why I decided to go to Uber was more money, just to kind of give myself that financial security for a year to start my own thing. Um, and also more learning opportunities. I feel like normally you learn more just by doing different things than by just staying and kind of doing the same thing, or at least you'd learn more breadth of things. So at Uber, my kind of thesis, and this turned out to be true, was that I'd learned how to build more scalable, higher quality software systems, just because it was a much bigger company. It was like a 10,000 person company at the time. Um, and I worked on their payments team and we were basically doing an entire rewrite of the payments infrastructure, building a ton of new microservices and stuff and pretty hard technology. Um, but it actually turned out to be really useful as well. And I used a lot of those things that I learned on the architecture side um, to inform a lot of the decisions that we've made at DYDX. Um, again, I just generally don't really like to be managed that much. Um, so when I was at Uber, even though I was just kind of a level two engineer or whatever, just started working on the most impactful things, even though I wasn't really told to. And they were like, oh, okay, you're actually doing a good job at this. You can continue. Um, so they 
that that kind of let me learn a lot more than I think I otherwise would have. Again, I'm not necessarily advocating that everybody does that, but it worked out well for me. And that's just kind of generally the type of stuff I like to do. So at what point do you realize, I think I'm ready, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to take the leap of faith? Yeah, so I, just to be honest, really didn't like Uber. Um, and it's not necessarily so much an indication of Uber in particular. I just really don't think I would like working at any big company. Um, and I just felt like what I was doing was meaningless. Not to say that the Uber product is meaningless, it's super meaningful, but I was just one out of 10,000 people that work there, right? And easily replaceable. Um, and I feel like for me, I really want to find meaning in work. Um, so wasn't super happy at Uber with that being the driving cause. Um, I had planned to stay for a year, you know, just to best my options and stuff like that. Um, but and just kind of a rash decision. I was biking into work one day and halfway through the bike ride, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to quit today. <laughs> um, so I went in and I did it. I told my manager that I was quitting. You know, I stayed for two more weeks and stuff, of course. Um, but yeah, then I just left and I kind of felt like I was ready to go. Like I had the financial freedom. I, from my time at Coinbase and happy to go more into this was really sold on crypto still and wanted to build something in Ethereum specifically. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to build, but I had this pretty good hypothesis that something that could be built on Ethereum would be super valuable. Um, so I left Uber two weeks after that. Um, and started working by myself. So what happened next? Yeah, so I started my company and it was just me. Um, and a lot of people I think are hesitant to start a company by themselves, but I'm actually a really big proponent of, especially for good software engineers, not being afraid to just start something by yourself. Like you have all of the tools that you need to build a product. And then if you're actually building something that's valuable, that's like the best recruiting tool that there is, just having a great idea, having a great MVP, maybe even some investor traction. So I started building something by myself. And again, I really wasn't sure what to build, to be honest, but I was super sold on Ethereum. Um, it's kind of going back in time a little bit to Coinbase. It was just a super awesome place to learn about crypto. And I think the thing that you have to realize about crypto in 2015 was at least as like a layperson in crypto, Bitcoin was really the only exciting thing that there was. And all of us were convinced that Bitcoin would be the only thing that was ever interesting and could be big in crypto, um, which of course turned out to be wrong, um, but just kind of setting the stage. And the interesting thing that happened in crypto while I was at Coinbase was that Ethereum was launched. Um, and this really big watershed moment in crypto happened when Coinbase added ETH as the tradable pair, um, which was a big deal at the time. But we were really fortunate to have a great front row seat to seeing a lot of this innovation happen. Like, for example, we had Vitalik come and talk to us. We had Joey Krug, who's the founder of Augur, one of the great early Ethereum projects, come and teach us how to build smart contracts. Like, we had Olaf Carlson Wee, who was working there at the time, just teaching, just like running these lunch and learn sessions about Ethereum. And the point I'll make is that it took us a really long time, or at least me, and I think most people, to really wrap our heads around what Ethereum was. Um, and I think it's a lot simpler and easier for people to understand now because other people understand it. But like back then, like nobody understood it. It's like maybe 100 people. But once I did, I kind of had this aha moment that I was like, 
oh, this is a fundamentally new paradigm of computing. For the first time, you can build these programs that run autonomously, that aren't controlled by anybody. There must be something that you could build on top of this that will be really valuable. Again, I didn't really know what it was, and I didn't really think of any great ideas, to be honest, while I was at Uber thinking about what I wanted to do next. So, But that's kind of where I was at this point in time, convinced on Ethereum. So I didn't know what to build. So I built something that I felt like was pretty general purpose and turned out to be a terrible idea, but I'll go through it because I think it's instructive. I built a search engine for decentralized apps because, um, again, I wasn't really sure what to build, but I was like, okay, there must be something. So I'll just build something that kind of indexes the entire space. Um, and this was back in 2017, um, early 2017. And the problem was there just literally weren't any decentralized apps. So like, what is the point of a search engine if there's nothing to search for? The kind of idea was that I could use data on the blockchain um, to kind of inform a new type of page rank algorithm to effectively rank decentralized apps better than like your average web search engine could. Um, not a bad idea, but the thing that was wrong about it and the thing I've come to really understand and internalize about startups is that timing is by far the most important thing in startups. Like maybe someday somebody will build a search engine for decentralized apps, but it certainly wasn't in 2017. Um, and no matter how well I did, just the timing was completely wrong for that. Um, so it completely failed. Like I built the whole thing out um, and spent like four or five months of my time on it. And I had like five users ever. Um, so it just went nowhere. Um, but that was really instructive. And I feel like taught me an important lesson. So at what point do you realize, hey, you know, I, I got to pull the plug here? Yeah, so it wasn't working. And I had like five users was kind of feeling down about things. But this kind of framing that I went into with starting a company of, I'm just going to spend a year of my time on it. I had already committed, at least in my mind, to doing that, I think was actually really useful because I could have come out of this first experience and be like, oh, you know, I tried my best. I got like five users, completely failed. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I was just like, go back to a company or something. If I didn't have that framing of I'm going to spend a year on this. Um, but I did have that. So at least in my mind, I had like six months or so of that left. Um, and I, I think like had taken a vacation with my family or something. So it was like a little bit of a pause in between working and was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I was thinking about whether I wanted to continue on this search engine thing um, or do something different. And I ended up thinking pretty strongly that I wanted to do something different. And again, that's kind of why I gave the background of that I learned that timing was really important. But the main thing I wanted to do, and again, I wasn't sure what to do at this point, was build something that was actually useful right now in crypto. Um, and there actually weren't very many, that's like very many things that you could build that were useful in, in crypto in 2017. But the main thing that kind of was working, and it was very small at the time, but it was kind of working, was decentralized exchanges. Um, and the very first decentralized exchanges, there's one called 0x, and I'm fortunate to know the founder there, um, and one called Kyber, a couple other ones, were just starting to come out. And I took a look at this, kind of wrapped my head around it again, and thought, this is actually something that's useful. Like, wow, for the first time, you can trade with other people just using code rather than intermediaries. There's some, very small, but like some amounts of volume being traded on these things. This seems useful. Okay, but do I want to just build another decentralized exchange, just like spot decentralized exchange or something different? And I think the next leap that I took was 
what's the next thing that comes after these decentralized exchanges? And at the time, they were just spot decentralized exchanges, spot just being a fancy word for regular buying and selling of assets. And I thought, what comes next after this? And I didn't know very much about finance, to be honest, um, but a lot of my friends from Princeton had gone to work in finance. So talk to them a little bit just to learn about very, very high level financial market stuff. And I learned that in finance, and this may sound obvious to a lot of people, but I didn't really know it at the time, derivatives are actually the most widely traded asset in finance rather than spot. Um, and I found this really interesting. And I was like, oh, this isn't the case in crypto yet, but it seems like it should be, or at least at some point, it seems like derivatives will become the most widely traded asset in crypto too. So again, what can I build that's useful right now and what makes sense from a timing perspective and what comes next after spot decentralized exchanges? What about a decentralized exchange for advanced financial products and derivatives? And that's what I started with UIDX. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So tell us about DYDX. I mean, what's the business model and how do you guys make money? So, yeah, I've been working at DYDX for about five and a half years now. And we are the biggest decentralized derivatives exchange. Just to kind of give you a sense of scope right now, centralized exchanges are still the biggest way people trade crypto. So this is just things like Coinbase and Binance. Um, and decentralized exchanges make up about 5 to 10% of the market or so. It's a little small in derivatives. Um, but we trade about a billion dollars in trading volume per day on DYDX. And that's good enough to kind of make up about 1.5% of the entire crypto market. So relatively small. Um, but obviously, we were building decentralized exchanges from zero. And that's grown from zero in the past couple of years. And a lot of people believe that we'll, it will continue growing in the future. So that's kind of where we're at right now. In terms of business model, at least today, we make money based off of trading fees, like a very similar exchange to how similar business model to how most exchanges operate. Um, and that is basically just linearly proportional to how much trading volume we do. So centralized versus decentralized. 
you know, especially for the people that are listening? What can you tell us? The best way I can explain DeFi and maybe even zooming out a little bit more to encompass all of decentralized applications is that it's just based on code, not intermediaries. So what do I mean by that? Um, let's kind of start with what Ethereum is and what a smart contract is. A smart contract is just a fancy word for a program that runs directly on the blockchain. So it's sort of similar, you know, how most programs and most startups just run on the cloud, right? So they just get an AWS account, start running some programs there. On Ethereum, you can just have a program, but literally deploy it to the blockchain, and then it just runs on the blockchain. And this may seem like an implementation detail or like who really cares about this, but it has a couple of really important properties. The first is that once this code is running on the blockchain, nobody controls it. So it's just code that's running on the blockchain, sort of in a similar way to how nobody controls Bitcoin and there's no CEO or anything, but it still works and people use it. So it's the same for DeFi and any decentralized application. It's also really transparent. So a cool property of smart contracts is that they can quite literally own money. Um, so you can have your program sort of custody funds on users' behalf, and then they are the only ones that have access to those funds. And everything is transparent. So you can use what's called a block explorer, which is just a fancy word for a website that lets you see what's going on on Ethereum or whatever blockchain you're using. Check out the entire health of the protocol, check out the source code, um, and just really understand what's going on. This is actually really useful sometimes, um, especially in cases like what happens with FTX recently and a lot of the centralized products that people use in crypto. If they were instead using something like DYDX, that never could have happened, right? It's just, first of all, literally impossible for us to steal any funds, and then everything is transparent as well. So I would define kind of DeFi as running on programs that just run directly on the blockchain. It's totally open, it's totally transparent, um, and then users can control their funds as well. And just in terms of why I'm so excited about it, honestly, it just kind of makes sense to me. Like, it seems like the way finance should work. Um, like, why do we even have financial intermediaries other than out of necessity, because we didn't know how to not have them before? Um, and going forward into the future, yes, there are a lot of drawbacks today with DeFi, like it's just really nascent, it's hard to build this technology, but that's the stuff, kind of stuff that happens with any new technology. And fast forward like 5, 10, 20 years from now, I really do believe that it will become kind of the dominant way that most of finance operates. Uh, and what about capital raising? How much money have you guys raised to date for this? So we've raised a total of $87 million over, I think, four fundraising rounds. Um, and starting from the beginning, so we raised our seed rounds. And actually, for the first like six months or so of DYDX, it was just me um, working as a solo founder and only employee. Um, and we raised, we, I sort of use as a general term, but I guess I raised the seed round when it was just me. Um, we raised $2 million at the time on the, the safe at a $10 million uh, valuation basically from Andreessen Horowitz and from Polychain. Um, and I alluded to this before, but I think the thing that like fundraising actually went super well and I found it to be really easy. Um, and why, why was it so easy for us? I think the thing that I had done really well is not go out and network to just like a ton of people and try to pitch DYDX to everyone on Sand Hill Road, it was that I had these really good relationships with only a few people that really mattered. 
Um, so like when I was fundraising, I went out to Olaf, um, who was do uh, sorry, Coinbase's first employee and had since gone on to found Polychain, which is one of the now one of the biggest uh, crypto investment funds. I went out to Fred, who was one of the co-founders of Coinbase, and basically nobody else. And I was just like, hey, guys, um, I built this thing like I'm raising, um, had maybe a phone call with them about it. And they were really excited. And Olaf, to his credit, was immediately like, yes, I want to invest. He's like, tell me how I can give you money. And that's that's so much to his credit. Um, I think I had a lot of anxiety about fundraising, uh, just like I, I'm sure anybody does. And one thing I'll say about Olaf is at the time he had become, at least in crypto, sort of like a big shot, basically. <laughs> um, like he really started the first crypto hedge fund that did pretty well. He was like on the cover of Forbes magazine, <laughs> like all this stuff. So I like went, um, he invited me over to their like office, which was just like uh, apartment building, basically. Um, and he comes over, I was like super nervous. And he's like, hey, Antonio. And he's just like, gives me a hug. Um, and I was like, wow. Um, I really appreciate that. Like that sort of just like diffused all of the tension out of the situation and much to his credit. Well, of course, the anxiety, Antonio. Well, you know, it's really the one of the first big hurdles that you have to get over, I think. And it makes it feel a lot more real, right? When you're just working on something, especially by yourself or just with a couple other friends or co-founders or whatever, sort of feels like a project, right? You're like, okay, I'm like working on this startup that's just like me coding at home with like no users and like who really cares. But once you actually raise money, it feels real, right? Like, oh, oh shit, it's like $10 million valuation. Like, holy heck, like I was making like $100,000 a year or whatever before. That seems like so much, all of that. And you know, that you want that. So I think anything that you want and don't feel completely confident about causes a lot of anxiety. But I guess going back to the story, it's like, went to Olaf, went to Fred, and then they were super nice and it started introducing me to people like Olaf. I can't remember who exactly, but I think it was Olaf introduced me to Chris Dixon at Andreessen Horowitz, then met him. Um, and much to my surprise, after a couple meetings, they wanted to invest too. And Polychain and Andreessen Horowitz ended up co-leading our round. Um, and I met a bunch of angel investors, a lot of whom are really, really awesome. Um, can't name them all, but one of my favorites um, is Avichal Garg, who's now the founder of Electric Capital. And the thing that he did, and the thing you should really look for in investors is people that are sort of on your side. And you can kind of tell when that happens. But he was like, you know, so I pitched him and um, he was like, okay, yeah, I want to invest. And also like, let's think about this from your perspective. Like, here's how we can structure the round. Here's like how you should make a pitch deck, like all this other stuff. Um, and that was super helpful because fundraising is really just this like arcane process that just is sort of weird. Um, and it's very like relationship based. You just have to like play the game sort of, of getting like different term sheets. And you don't really know what these terms mean as a first time entrepreneur. Um, there's like a lot of pressure on you. So it's just super helpful to have some people like that that have gone through it before and can really be on your side. So, so I guess uh, in this case for you guys, you know, obviously you guys were selling all these investors on a vision uh, and I guess the vision, you know, let's talk about that. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Antonio, where the vision of DY, DX is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
So I think it's basically the same today as it was five years ago, to be honest. Um, and I talk about timing, but if anything, we were certainly early in DeFi five years ago. And even today, I still feel like we're fairly early in the grand evolution of DeFi. I sort of touched on this before, but my big goal with DYDX is to make DYDX into one of the biggest exchanges in the world. Um, centralized or decentralized. And I think there will come a time and there will come an inflection point where DeFi is actually doing most of the financial activity, first in crypto, and then I think eventually in all of finance. Um, but it's going to take a while. And I think that's the thing that people don't realize about a lot of new technology is how long it takes. Um, and I think that actually is one of the main causes of this kind of boom and bust cycle that we see in crypto. It's like, okay, new technology invented like Ethereum or like ERC-20 tokens or like NFTs or whatever. People get really excited about it. They're like, oh, this is the future in XYZ ways. Um, and then fast forward a year from then, they're like, this thing sucks. <laughs> and it's because the technology is still really early. Um, and that initial enthusiasm is oftentimes right. Not always right. Like people are never always right. But it's oftentimes like people have generally the right idea. Um, but they just have the timing wrong. Um, and then when it doesn't materialize as fast as they want it to, then they get really sad about it. And in crypto where everything is priced, that causes the prices to crash. And then there'll be something else people get excited about and then it'll go up and then it'll crash. And the problem is that these things take like 10 years plus to play out. Um, and it's hard for people to pay attention for that long um, and really just kind of maintain the faith. I would even say that of a lot of founders in crypto, and I'm sure this is the case in other technologies as well. But I think the biggest thing that we've done really well at DYDX is take a long-term approach. Like I always tell everybody, our goal is to become one of the biggest exchanges in the world, but on a five to 10 year time horizon. It's not next year, like there's no way we're gonna be bigger than Binance next year. But 10 years from now, it could happen. Like, yeah, it could probably like a 10 or 20% chance in my mind that that happens. And that's actually pretty reasonable. Um, and that's something that really excites me. So that's kind of the main way that I talk to our team, talk to the public about it, is in this really long-term approach. And I think one of the other core things that's really important in our values, and this just comes from the way that I am, is thinking really big um, and not compromising or settling. Um, and I think one important thing in startups is to figure out what you want to do as a founder. Um, it could be like, okay, I just want to run like a business and sell it for tens of millions of dollars and have enough money to live forever. And maybe I'm happy with that. Or, you know, maybe I want to get acquired or it could be that you want to shoot for something really big. Um, like I want to build one of the biggest companies or projects in the world. And, you know, that's like probably almost definitely not going to happen, but like setting yourself up that such that you maximize the percent chance of that happening is how I think about things. Um, and I'm like, I would rather kind of maximize our percent chance of become, of hitting that major milestone of becoming one of the biggest exchanges in the world, um, rather than kind of optimizing for the downside. And it becomes hard to do that, harder and harder to do that as you get bigger. Because now we're like, you know, when it's when you're just starting out, it's like easy to say that because you're like nothing to lose, right? It's like, okay, yesterday, I had no company at all. Um, and anything is going to be better than that. But fast forward to now and taking DYDX as an example, you know, we trade a billion dollars a day on our exchange and we have real users and we're making a lot of revenue and I have 50 employees. 
Um, so it's kind of hard to maintain that mindset of, you know, I don't care. <laughs> like we are just going to go big or go home basically. And right now, one of the things that we're working on, um, and I won't go too deeply into this because it's fairly technical, but it's building a new version of the protocol. And what that means is just like an entirely new product. And we're going to build that product and we're going to ship it. And then we're going to completely cancel our current product, basically, even though it's trading like a billion dollars a day and it's using an entirely new technology and is fully decentralized. And there's all these things that are different and there's a million ways you could go wrong. But like, I really believe it gives us the best chance to kind of hit that goal that we have in the future of becoming something that's really big and that really matters. So I guess you're kind of asking about the vision. And I think this is something I've always sort of just been like this. I don't like, honestly, just to me, like anything else kind of seems boring. Like, why would you not do this? Like, what do you have to lose? <laughs> um, and I kind of felt a lot of anxiety about that for a while, because as you get more employees, at least for me, the biggest thing that I felt a lot of fear over was making sure that I do right by my employees. I'm like, oh, all these people like, are devoting years of their life to this thing that I built. Like, I want them to have a really great outcome and I want us to be at least moderately successful for them. So it's hard to just take risks and gamble with like throwing it all away to build something really big. Um, and the thing that helped me with that and the thing I've kind of learned about leadership over time is being vulnerable can actually be really powerful. So I have had all hands where I get up there and I'm like, guys, like heard me say this a million times. I, our goal is to become one of the biggest exchanges in the world in five to 10 years. I'm serious about that. And if I'm being honest with you, and I'll even say this publicly now, obviously, I think we have probably like a 10% chance of making that happen. 10%. So like 90% chance that we fail and we don't get there. Um, that's actually really exciting and motivational to me. Just like how many times in your life do you have any remote chance at all to do something that's impactful on that type of scale? So I'm excited about that. 90% chance we fail, guys. Like, are you excited about that too? Like, I'm telling you like what we're doing, like, let, I'll, I'll be transparent. And like, if you don't want to work here, like that's completely fine. And we'll help you find something that you do want to do. But that actually went over super well. And even though crypto is in a really big bear market right now and has been for over a year now, everyone at DYDX is still super motivated to keep working towards that goal because we are really long-term focused um, because we do shoot really big. And I think that's just something that I wanted to do and figuring out a way to make that happen was really powerful. So obviously here we're talking about, you know, where things, you know, where you hope things to have them, you know, in the future, which I think that that's very profound, you know, the way that you're shooting for the, for the long run. You know, I, I think it was, one, one, I think it was Bill Gates, or or I can't remember well who said this, that in, in a year, we always kind of like overestimate what we can achieve. And in a 10-year period, we always underestimate what we're capable of doing. No? So I think that that's really profound what you mentioned there. Uh, now, one thing that I'd like to ask you is, you know, let's talk about the past. Now, we've been talking about the future. Let's talk about the past. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment where you were taking the leap of faith where you gave your notice at Uber and you're like, okay, let's go. Let's say you had the opportunity of sitting down with that younger self and being able to give that younger Antonio one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the, the vulnerability in leadership is actually something not a lot of people talk about. Um, and I was just talking about that, but 
One of the things I've really learned in the past year, and I've been really fortunate to work with one of the best coaches out there, um, Matt Mashari, who coaches a lot of really great Silicon Valley founders. Um, and one of his big things that is really unintuitive, but actually makes a lot of sense to me now is not being motivated by fear. Like, what are you motivated by? Um, and I think most people are motivated by fear. They're like, oh, I'm scared of not being successful or, you know, not being relevant or things like that. And most people start startups because of that. And I certainly did. I think it's just like a natural impulse. I was like, oh, I see this as the pinnacle of success. Um, and I'm scared I won't get there. I'm scared I'm going to fail, like whatever. Um, but in the past year, I've really started being motivated less by fear and more by joy and kind of what is possible to achieve. And it's important later in startups as well, even as things grow, I've touched on this before, but as things start to grow, you raise funds, you hire people, you have, feel like you have a lot to lose. Um, and you start to be fearful that, oh, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, um, like, I don't know what the future of DeFi is going to be. Like, I feel like sort of a fraud right now. Everybody's like building me up to be this you know, at least somebody that is purporting to know what's going on in crypto and DeFi and what's going to happen. Like, how am I supposed to know? I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never run a company before. Um, you start to just feel a lot of self-doubt. Like, again, I certainly did. You know, you start to manage people. You don't really know how to do that. Um, all of these things. And then you just sort of feel like an imposter. You feel scared. Um, and you start to mo mostly be motivated by that. And for the first four years of BYDX, that's kind of how it was operating. But fast forward to now, um, and I touched on this a little bit in my previous answer, just what you're motivated by, I think makes a massive difference. Um, and for me that, you know, I was scared of failing, right? Anybody would be scared of failing. Um, and I was scared of letting my employees down, but just being really transparent and vulnerable, I think helped me a lot to not be motivated by that. Um, and one of the other things I did to really help me with not being motivated by fear is think about the worst thing that could like realistically happen with DYDX. And we're very fortunate with DYDX. We have about five or six years of runway right now, which is great for this uh, financial market. And we are fortunate to be in a good situation with really high quality employees. So like literally the worst thing that could probably happen to us outside of me getting hit by like a boss or something, um, is that we work on this for like five years. It doesn't really work out, but what would happen in that case? And again, let's just remember, it's like the worst thing that could happen. So we build this out for five years. One of the other things I'm proud of with DYDX is that we really build on the forefront of technology, even within crypto and blockchain. Like for example, we were one of the first apps to be built on a layer two. And fast forward to today, we're literally the biggest application running on a layer two roll up in the world. Um, and we're actually about to throw that away. Um, we're about to build on this technology called Cosmos, which I won't go too much into, but it lets us build our own blockchain. So the point of this is that we really were at the forefront of all of this technology. And again, worst case, even if we totally fail, we built some really exciting technology. And even if it doesn't work, the people that build after us will learn from that. And we still will have shaped the way that DeFi evolves in a big way. All of you employees that work at DYDX that I used to be so scared of letting down, 
well, you helped to do that. And you hopefully learned a lot of things just like I did at Coinbase. And you will go on, all 50 of you, and do awesome things in the future. And I can feel like I take some small piece of credit for everything that you do. And again, remember, this is the worst case. So it's like we totally fail. Um, we build like really great technology. We shape the course of at least what I'm convinced will be a technology that really shapes the world in the future. And maybe it'll be us that's out there as the winner. Maybe it'll be somebody else. But we were out here like we really built something that mattered. Um, and then I also get to take credit for like 50, potentially even more someday people going off and doing other awesome things in their life. Like, wow, that's actually not so bad. <laughs> and again, that's the worst case. And then if I feel like fine with that, um, then it's like, okay, anything after that is just gravy, right? Like, why, why not shoot for something really big? So I think that's kind of the biggest thing that I've learned in the past year and, and what I would try to convince my earlier self of. I love it. I love it. Well, Antonio, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? So you can find us online at dydx.exchange um, or on Twitter at, at dydx. And then I'm on Twitter at, at Antonio M. Giuliano. Amazing. Well, hey, Antonio, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.